Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And listeners, Caroline is about to jump out of her seat. She is so excited (laughs) to talk about today's podcast topic, unicorns. Yes, slash my entire childhood, my obsession with the movie Legend. Um, although I was talking about the movie Legend starring Tom Cruise and Mia Sarah, uh, with stuff you missed in history classes, Holly earlier. And she was like, yeah, I could take or leave the unicorns and the dreamy 21 year old Tom Cruise, but Tim Curry is the devil. Now that was my cup of tea. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So you haven't seen it, right? Right. Okay. So I really feel like, um, our movie, our sminty, like, movie binging is gonna have to be an epic length because we've gotta fit in so many movies, including Legend, the plot of which centers around, uh, this, this young woodland boy, which is Tom Cruise, who's in love with this pure princess, that's Mia Sarah. She's the girlfriend from um, Ferris Bueller, in case you're not sure who she is. Uh, and because he's this, like, woodland kid, he's, like, super familiar with all of the elves and the gnomes and all of the magical critters in the forest. So is it like Zelda? I'm just imagining him dressed up. Totally. Okay. Um, yeah, except it's not green. It's like he's wearing his, like, little t- tunic is brown. Anyway, so he like he's familiar with the unicorns, but, you know, unicorns don't just come to boys or really anyone. They can only come to the pure hearted virginal princess. So he takes Mia Sarah to see the unicorns and they approach her and she touches them. And then this sets off like a radical series of events involving good versus evil. And this is when we meet. Tim Curry's amazing devil character. And I watched that movie maybe thousands of times (laughs) over the course of my childhood and adulthood. Let's be honest. I still love it. I'm surprised I haven't seen it. It's high time I do. Yeah. Um, And I can't wait to watch it and possibly live tweet it with you. (laughs) That definitely has to happen. Listeners, hold us to that because we do get busy here. We do. In the stuff I've never told you studio, where we live. Yeah, basically. I've got my unicorn print sleeping bag under the table. <laughs> it's so cute. Yeah. And we have a little unicorn nightlight. It's pretty fun. Yeah, yeah. And I wear my unicorn pajamas to go to bed. <laughs> but, I mean, it, obviously, unicorns aren't just in the movie Legend. Uh, Lisa Frank was big on drawing unicorns. Still is. Still is. She's hiring. Maybe don't work for her. Um, what else do we have? There were, I mean, unicorns were like across my entire childhood. Hello, My Little Pony? Oh yeah, My Little Pony unicorns, but they also had like the pegacorn. The uni, unisus? What do you call a pegasus? Pegasus? Pegasus unicorn. All I know are they're the pegasisters in the brony culture. (laughs) Someone right now who's a huge fan of My Little Pony, Friendship is Magic, is yelling at their, I can almost sense it. At their smartphone or whatever they're listening to this podcast on. There's also The Last Unicorn. Oh, my God. That was another obsession. Mia Farrow was the voice of the unicorn. There was also Jeff Bridges was the voice of the guy 
in the movie. I hope that was his name, his character's name. He's just that guy, like the dude in The Big Lebowski. Exactly. There was a skeleton. Does anyone, like, I so, this movie is seared onto my brain. There's a skeleton that's an alcoholic uh, that drinks wine, but it just, he's a skeleton, so it just pours through him. It didn't seem strange to me as a child. So an alcoholic skeleton. Maybe that alcoholic skeleton was the inspiration for Futurama's Bender. That's just the first thing that comes to mind. Maybe. <laughs> but the question that we really want to answer, if possible, today is why unicorns are so associated with girl culture. Yeah. Because, of course, there's a whole girls love horses thing, which mm-hmm. there is a Stuff Mom Never Told You video on that uh, that you can watch either on our website or our YouTube channel, Stuff Mom Never Told You. And I will most likely post it on our Facebook page. Is um, it because you can braid their manes? It's definitely, yeah. You can brush their manes. You can braid their manes. Just pet them. <laughs> no, there are all these theories about how horses are our our gatekeepers to escape mm. and mobility. And we can just ride off with these side majestic. Yes, yeah, side saddle <laughs> with these majestic creatures. But unicorns are obviously a whole other ball of wax. Well, yeah, because they're magic. And they got a horn. And they don't exist. (gasps) Horses do. Spoiler. But there are many, many animals on this planet that do exist that basically created our idea of the unicorn. And I thought it was great that there was this whole upsurge in unicorn articles around 2008, uh... Because a one-horned, what was it, like a deer? A deer, yeah, yeah in Italy. deer was spotted in 2008 on a nature preserve, and everybody was like, oh my god, unicorns do exist! And hopefully they didn't kill it. Uh, hopefully it's like protected and f- frolicking happily throughout the nature preserve. So. I mean, how idyllic is this, though, that uh, IRL unicorn was at a nature preserve outside of Florence. Uh. Just, just imagine... I mean, of course, that's where it would be. Yeah. It's like part of mythology come to life from some Greek goddess or something. Um, but, you know, so obviously, though, when we think of a unicorn now, when they're featured in 80s fantasy movies starring Tom Cruise, they don't look like deer. Unicorns are huge, white sparkly beasts that just look like horses with a narwhal horn, basically, on them. And so it is interesting to go back throughout history and uncover sort of the evolution of this creature. Yeah, there is an extensive and cross-cultural history of unicorns. It seems like there is an innate like human desire for unicorns to be real. And I'm surprised there isn't some kind of like evolutionary psychology theory out there. Right. About like the horn is phallic and it's our fertility desire, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> Although, of course, the phallic horn does come up when you start getting real deep into unicorn art history. Which we did. We're fun at parties. We are fun at parties. Actually, I had a lot of fun putting these notes together. And trust me, they could have been a lot longer. So you're welcome that this episode is not four hours long. Well, why don't you take us into the unicorn mythology stable? Although, you know what? (laughs) Unicorns can't be kept in a stable, right? They can't be contained. I'll take you into the magical meadow. Yes. Of unicorn understanding. Ooh, I want to go to there. Yes, you're welcome. Well, come along. 
the earliest stories of unicorns, no surprise, are pretty vague because it is a fictional beast. So people are like, yeah, you know, I saw this thing. And people are like, the thing with the one horn. And the guy's like, yeah, totally. And they're like, did it have a white head? And he's like, sure. So everything's a little vague. Uh, except for a story from Marco Polo, uh, namesake of the favorite summertime pool day game pastime. Thank you for clarifying that. You're welcome. He always gets mixed up with other Marco Polos. <laughs> we want to make sure credit where credit is due. That's right. Um, but his description is the only one from those early days that can be very clearly linked to like one animal, and that's the Indian rhinoceros. Which, unlike its African counterpart, just has one horn. Oh. Yeah, so the African has, uh, one on its nose and one on its forehead. The Indian rhino just has the singular horn on its nose parts. So understandable then that Marco Polo, who would have never seen an animal like this, would have presumed it's magic. I'm sure. Because, yes, ma- everything's magic back then. Or maybe, well, did he think it was magic or just like, whoa, this is, this is something that has never been seen before because they thought that they were real. Well, yeah, everybody thought that they were real. But you also have to keep in mind, too, and we're going to get into this as we discuss, like, Greek uh, historians and, and physicians who got in on this this myth-making. Um, but, you know, if you live in one part of the world, it's not like you can jet off quickly to another part of the world. And so if you have animals like a giraffe or a hippopotamus, for instance, like, what makes a giraffe more believable than a unicorn or less believable. If if something as crazy looking as a giraffe can exist, why wouldn't you believe someone who's like, and then there's a horse with a horn, <laughs> and they're like, okay. And only uh, virgins, virgin girls can catch it. <laughs> I wonder, though, too, because there's a common theme of, uh, in the early days of this unicorn lore, that they exclusively resided in the East. And I wonder if it is connected to the whole exoticism, like European exoticism of the quote-unquote Far East. Well, sure, because it's just, it's the other um, and you do have uh, the import of a lot of stories of, of crazy beasts that Westerners, so to speak, or, or people in Greece or in Europe had just never had any experience with. And so you have, you know, you've got the spice trade going on. But with the spice trade or with the silk trade, you also have stories coming with those merchants. And so it's natural that you would think like, oh, well, I'm going to believe this because this person clearly knows since they've been there. So you do have the trade also in stories and mythology. Uh, But of course, we have to go back to ancient Egypt as we frequently do on this podcast, uh, we get one of the first drawn representations of a unicorn. And I don't mean the the Lisa Frank unicorn, although that would be amazing to see, like, hieroglyphics of a Lisa Frank unicorn. I can't even imagine. I know. That'd be pretty sweet. Um, and I'm like, how do they even know what a dolphin looks like? And it's rainbow. Um, and <laughs> they had golden retrievers <laughs> serving on pizza slices back then. If only. 
So back between around 1305 to 1170 BCE, we get this ibex-looking critter. And that's kind of like an antelope-looking thing. It's like a delicate, dainty antelope, basically. Uh, And it's playing chess with a lion because everyone knows that ibexes and lions play board games together. Of course. But the thing is, it probably just looks like a unicorn because it's in profile. And so any animal with horns... (laughs) Let's turn to the side. Might look like it just has one horn. And I don't mean to disparage our ancient ancestors, um, because it's entirely possible they didn't even mean for it to look like it only had one horn. But this is a theme that we will see come up again and again across different cultures when they report on horned animals. They're like, it only has one. Oh, wait, it turned. Oh, okay, that's two. <laughs> it's two. It's a normal animal. Don't don't worry. Nobody I mean, panic. this is just a giant millennia's long game of unicorn telephone <laughs> happening. No, for for sure, <laughs> for sure. And and you know, we mentioned the Far East and how Westerners were like, "Oh, it's weird over there." Um, well, in the fifth century BCE, we get the earliest references to the Chinese chillin, which reportedly appeared to Confucius's mother before he was born. And now the chillin. Uh, children was nice. It was a, a peaceful creature, as opposed apparently to the Japanese Kirin, which was a criminal killing, uh, meanie critter. And, uh, Kirin also is what the, the beer yeah. is named after. But can you describe what a chillin looks like? So, from my cursory Google search, and please, if you are more of a, an expert in uh, Chinese mythology, feel free to write us. Chillin' experts, momstuff at howstuffworks.com. For sure. Um, but it it was sort of like a mix of several creatures, as, as all of these unicorn myths are. But there was a little bit of dragon and some scales. There was a little bit of, like, deer horn going on, uh, a little bit of, like, lion uh, so it's, it's kind of, you know, it it follows a lot of uh, our ancient mythology where, you know, you've got in other cultures, you've got something like the griffin or the sphinx. Um, this is just another mix grab bag, if you will, of animals. And if we look at early European depictions, we start to see the, the familiar, always white, cloven hooved unicorn that really at this point looks more like a goat than a horse, and the size is kind of in between the two. And they're depicted with straight horns that have markings moving up and across them. And they look kind of like these goat-slash-antelope-ish creatures called turs that resided in the Caucasus Mountains. Yeah, so turs are pretty cool looking. I hope you're all Googling. Like, I hope I hear the tippity-tappity of your, of your little keyboards at the moment because turs are, are pretty cool. They, they also can be kind of vicious. They've got these huge horns that kind of curve back and around. And I mean, if that's the critter that you see all the time when you're out on the hunt, it makes sense that you would form a lot of mythology around it, right? That sounds like a ram. Yeah, it, it does look kind of like a ram with, with these huge, Horns, I, I wouldn't want to make it mad. It seems like, I mean, maybe the thing is humans just have a really hard time grasping, like, horned creatures. Do horns just weird us out? Maybe. Maybe, maybe like, one guy a long time ago, like, got headbutted by a, a horned creature, and he's like, I don't ever want that to happen again. <laughs> let's Let's pretend that these are magical and we should avoid them. <laughs> and word just spread around the world. <laughs> As it did. 
back then. Um, so there was this great paper in the journal Folklore from April of 2003 that really, really took a deep dive into Caucasus lore around horned creatures like the Tur, but also their relationship with women and the hunt. And this is also where we see pre like idea of the virginal Mia Sarah figure like tempting the unicorn. This is where we see an alliance between wild horned creatures and women. And it was a much more active rather than virginal and passive role that the woman fulfilled. Well, and that sounds like it's hearkening to, you know, Greek mythology with Athena, the goddess of the hunt. Yes, because Athena, wasn't she also depicted either as a deer or like a deer was her, like her familiar, basically? Her daemon. I am going to nod. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think that's right. And people can write us and tell us if we're correct or not. But I, I was, I was big into mythology growing up. I'm pretty sure a deer was involved with Athena. She was the goddess of the hunt. Um, and yeah, and she was active and she was in, in Greek mythology. She was allowed to be, uh, aggressive and assertive and jealous and spiteful. All of these wonderful things that are so key to really juicy mythology. Um, but we see it in, uh, the Caucasus region as well. And there's a lot of bronzes that uh, archaeologists have found from this region that feature this type of critter, particularly this type of horned creature hanging out with ladies. For example, there was a buckle that they found that was depicting a woman sitting on top of a two-headed deer creature that was from the old Hellenic period, which is like five... 07 to 323 BCE thereabouts. And it really illustrated the association of a woman with a hunting prey animal and showing that it goes way back before the whole virginal thing, the whole Christian thing. And that's because in this region, in their hunting lore, woodland creatures were owned by a goddess. Although, as we would move through history, she would be replaced by a god, and then once Christianity moved in, by Saint George. Oh, it's like Snow White. Yeah. Goddess Snow White. Yeah, so she, Snow White goddess was, <laughs> she was funny because she, you know, owned all these animals, but she would let you kill some of them, uh, but not her pets. She distinguished oh, yeah. between, like, the regular animals and her pets. And the way you would know if an animal was her pet was that it would be marked in some way, usually with a white color or like a white mark on the forehead of an unusually large size. Uh, you might have some golden horns or a shining horn. There's a the horn theme mm-hmm. again. Or those horns might be twisted and intertwined. Uh, or it might have some dappled or multicolored skin. Yeah, and so also according to Georgian mythology, and that's the country of Georgia, not the state of Georgia where we live, um, the Tur, here comes the Tur again, the Tur was this goddess's favorite animal. And you could kill some of them, but not her particular pets that had the special marking. Um, and the thing is, if you did kill one of her pets... She, you know, no big deal. She might kill your children or send an avalanche or send a snow leopard to kill you. That last one, sending a snow leopard, that is uh, pretty cool. That's a cool goddess move. Yeah, I I like it. I wish I could send a snow leopard. Right? You know? I mean, there was, uh, what was it, earlier this year? Time is so non-existent (laughs) for me now. Um, It could have been like two years ago when there was that... uh, company that went viral where you could send glitter to your enemies. Yep. 
Imagine if you could send a snow leopard to your enemies. <laughs> mm. <laughs> but I would want I would want a friendly snow leopard. Somebody like uh like the the leopard equivalent of the rock. You know how the rock like looks really tough and like he could really beat you up? I love Dwayne the Rock Johnson. But he's so sweet. I uh, would want that. Like just yes. so that the leopard could show up and be like, hey, stop. And you're like, oh my God. Oh, okay. And then he's like, all right, you can pet me. And then I got to go. But while I'm here, I'm going to empower some young girls. I'm really about confidence. I have a daughter myself. Also, I have a great Instagram. And you should follow me because it'll just make your day. Yeah. Can we get, like, The Rock riding a snow leopard? Ooh. Yeah. Yes. Answer, yes. Photoshop exists. Done and done. Listeners, you know what you have to do. Okay, so there are a lot of things, too, about this goddess that I love. There are all side notes that she was also very jealous and she didn't like it if the hunters had sex with a real-life woman before the hunt. So these hunters who believed in these magical creatures, maybe they thought of them as unicorns, maybe not, but they definitely believed in this goddess, so they would have to like say all these prayers to her, they would light a fire, they'd be celibate before the hunt, and if they were successful, it was likely because they themselves had some hanky-panky with the goddess, which I was like, what were they doing up in the mountains all day long? So they were celibate with human women. But not with the goddess. Oh. Yeah, because she was jealous. And in order to have sex with the goddess... I don't know, man. I don't know. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm saying, like, in order to have sex with the goddess, wouldn't they woo her with bread? Yes. She, she, <laughs> She's like Oprah. <laughs> I love bread. I'm never going to get tired of <laughs> Oprah's love of bread. Uh, yeah, you had to, you had to bring, that's right. I almost forgot the most important part. You ha- it wasn't just lighting fires and saying prayers. You had to bring tiny loaves of bread, which honestly just sounds like it would appeal to me as well. Unless it's a pumpernickel. You know, I can do without that. Yeah, I like a good rye. Maybe like a country wheat. Or a sourdough. Sourdough. Mm, mm. Yeah, girl. That's right. Uh, but yeah, again, like this is an active controlling figure. She controlled both the predators, like the snow leopard, but also the prey, things like those deer antelope critters like the tur. And so we, we've sort of given you the rundown here. You're probably like, what? Get to the good stuff about the unicorns. Well, I mean, we're associating this link, though, between women and at least unicorn-ish-like kind of-esque creatures. Yes, exactly. Because, yeah, the esque is very important because that's all the esque is all we get for centuries until basically Lisa Frank. So um, where else are these stories coming from? Greece. Well, actually, they're kind of being funneled through Greece. This uh, Greek doctor historian guy named Theseus, who basically borrowed from Himalayan, Persian, and Indian stories and myths about these magical creatures. And so around 398 BCE, which is also during that Hellenic period, uh, where people over in the Caucasus region are making buckles, um, he travels through Persia, now Iran, and he records just these wild tales of faraway creatures. And um, there was one source that we read that was basically like, this guy was so gullible. And my thing is like, dude, it's not like he had Google. Like we've like we, you know, talked about earlier. You know, these guys were like, sure, if a giraffe exists, why wouldn't a unicorn exist? Oh, man. And if only you were one of those people back then who had like some prescience that Google could happen, <laughs> that could be your ultimate get out of jail free card. Like, eh, well, I mean, maybe the earth is flat. I don't know. I don't have Google. I don't have Google Earth. People are like, what? Goo what? Goo. <laughs> 
But so TCS gives this description of this creature, and he says that they are wild asses as large as horses with white bodies, red heads, and dark blue eyes. They've got a uh, tricolor horn on their forehead, which is white, red, and black. Uh, he said it's about 18 inches long, and when you drink out of it, it'll cure epilepsy and serve as an antidote to poison. Well, and in other cultures and traditions, you could imbibe ground-up alleged unicorn horn. Uh, the Royal Pharmaceutical Society of London actually has a sample of medicinal unicorn horn, in quotes, that's either an ibex or a narwhal, but of course, hopefully not one of our null bending <laughs> narwhals from our knitting episode. And uh, I should also note that Queen Elizabeth I was gifted a unicorn horn, a supposed unicorn horn. Mm. And she, you know, went to great lengths to have it kind of verified as such because it was considered such a valuable gift. And um, uh There was another, I think it was King James after her, was really into unicorns because they were considered so potent. There was also this idea that unicorn horn, uh, like ground up, was kind of like a Viagra uh, type. uh, Everybody was looking for that (laughs) type supplement. And I believe there were two of these uh, alleged unicorn horns that were kept among like the prized possessions of the royals. Mm-hmm. And uh, after Queen Elizabeth, King James was so into unicorns and all the symbolism mm-hmm. about their power and virility that w- he's the reason why you get the unicorn in the British coat of arms. Yes, 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 yes. That's right. Um, which I love. I love that symbolism because it's always like a lion and a unicorn. Yes. And it's not because of Lisa Frank. It's because of, uh, again, I'm just because of sex and virility. Sex and power. Yeah. yeah. Oh. Doesn't that drive everyone? Yeah. Oh, there's, I've... there's our Evo psych <laughs> theory. <laughs> there we go. All right. We were looking for it. Um, well, so TCS was basically saying also that, um, these animals, these giant wild asses as large as horses, uh, were super swift and powerful. You couldn't catch them alive because they were, they would fight you viciously with their teeth and their heels. Um, and when they are killed, it, it, like Kristen was saying, it's for their horns and their ankle bones because apparently their meat was too bitter to eat. So there, there you go. Yeah. Who could possibly eat? unicorn meat. I don't know. But I would think that like that would be part of the thing, right? Like why at this time if you thought something was so powerful and magical and vicious like it seems like you would want to eat the meat to try to like absorb the power, but yeah. Maybe maybe you know, wild yak doesn't taste very good. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, it, yak tartar not so much. <laughs> Mm, I mean, I would try it. Um, but according to uh, unicorn expert Chris Lavers, who is a geographer from the University of Nottingham, uh, not surprisingly, TCS's description was combining many, many different animals from the Tibetan Plateau, along with, again, descriptions of the Indian rhino, which, like we said earlier, had just one horn and it was on its nose parts. But there were also a couple of different animals <laughs> wrapped up in this. So one animal that Lavers points out in his book, A Natural History of Unicorns, was the Tibetan antelope or chiru. So the males have straight black horns that rise almost vertically from their heads, as opposed to 
a horn coming out of your nose parts like a rhinoceros. <laughs> and these were super long horns in line with the 18-inch description from Tesius. And in profile, again, here we have that old profile <laughs> trick. They might look like they have one horn, and their horns were and are popular. I mean, we still have the whole horn trade on yeah. the black market. And uh, you'd wind up with one horn, not two, as a buyer. And their horns are still, unfortunately, used as medicine. Yeah, so ending up with one horn, it might be easier to believe that the creature it came from only has one horn. So again, people, gullible. You've got to you've got to ask questions. Be be media literate. Uh, people in the Tesius. 11th century or when? I, no, this was <laughs> before. This was BC. Uh, okay. There's also this animal called the Kiang, uh, which looks like just kind of a really pretty mule. Like if Lisa Frank designed a mule, it would kind of look like the Kiang because it's got it's kind of a redhead. But it's got a white belly and white legs. But looks can be deceiving. And as pretty as this animal is, and as much as I would just love to pet it, uh, it's actually pretty mean. And so Lavers points out that this is probably where we get the idea that unicorns, or, or Tesius got the idea that unicorns were too vicious to catch because Kiangs would kick and bite to try to uh, stay away from you, keep you away. And they are notoriously difficult to domesticate. That sounds a lot like some unicorn traits. I know, exactly. And then, of course, the wild yak is like part of that grab bag because it's also a Tibetan uh, or a Himalayan plateau animal that tales of its viciousness and general furriness might have gotten passed down. So all of that to say, there are these animals that are real. (laughs) But we just really, really, really wanted them to be unicorns. Yeah, we really. Well, I mean, just look at the amazing mythology that came out of misunderstandings, seeking to understand, trying to explain the world, trying to explain to your wife why your hunt was unsuccessful. It's like, see, Karen, you know, we got it on last night. And so my hunt was unsuccessful because the tur goddess was jealous. Oh, Karen, always ruining the hunt. <laughs> and the next chapter in our unicorn history is something I was very unaware of, which is the strong connection between unicorns and early Christianity. Yes, I said that. Unicorns and early Christianity. Christians were all about unicorns, which all I'm saying is, people, we might need to bring back the unicorns. That could be a selling point. <laughs> And we're going to get into all of that when we come right back from a quick break. And now back to the show. Well, see, the thing about Christianity and unicorns. Best transition ever, by the way. I mean, people do talk about like, well, they just didn't make it onto the ark. Yeah, but they were too slow. Which is surprising. Or too slow because they were dilly-dallying. They're magical. They were probably frolicking and, like, creating rainbows with their horns or whatever. In their meadow of understanding. Yes. But here's the thing, though. You'd think Noah would be like, okay, yeah, cows, chickens, pigs, whatever. Where's the unicorn? Someone go get the unicorns. I would try to make sure the unicorn was on board. Yeah. So I'm blaming Noah. Oh, Thanks, girl. Noah. Thanks, Noah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So... 
why I was also surprised at this Christian unicorn connection, which is that like the rainbow connection. Okay, now sorry, my brain. I would I fell down a rabbit hole quickly. I'm back. Um, it all boils down again to a misunderstanding, a, a translation error, which is like the best translation error ever, if you ask me. So basically, you've got Hebrew scripture translated into Greek, then Latin, and then English. Again, it's a giant game of unicorn-creating telephone. So, you've got this thing called a ream, or it was called a ream, because it's a wild ox that's now extinct, but that was translated into Greek as monokeros, or one-horned, because the Greeks didn't know what the heck a ream was, so they're like, I don't know, it seems like it's got horns, let's just call it this other thing. And then in the Christian's Latin Bible, that became unicornos, because they're like, mono, one, let's call it uni, uh, I guess, or whatever. And then by the time we get King James's English translation Bible, they turn that into unicorn. And no surprise, because King James was all about the unicorns. And I would propose that we go ahead and just accept this as the original <laughs> autocorrect. <laughs> okay, yes, absolutely. Um, and, and so because of this crazy game of unicorn telephone, we get, in Christian mythology... God's strength being compared to the strength of the unicorn. And it's like, okay, that makes sense, having an idea of this mythological unicorn, but it makes way more sense when you're talking about the strength of a wild ox, because it's not like those things were shrinking violets. Um, but so, yeah, you have at one point God talking to Job and saying, will the unicorn be willing to serve thee or abide by thy crib? Canst thou bind the unicorn with his band in the furrow or, or will he harrow the valleys after thee? I don't really know what that's saying, but it sounds like a unicorn is chasing you because it wants to love you. Well, I mean, he's he's essentially like elevate, you know, elevating Job. To, I mean, because Job has to lose everything, and then yeah, he's sure. going to regain all of the power. And uh, theologians listening, we've we've had a lot of shout-outs, by the way, to a lot of very specific <laughs> professions in this episode. And I hope we hear from all of you. Um, it to me, it sounds like God is saying, you know, you're, it's going to be cool. You're going to be so strong, like a unicorn is going to be down to hang out with you and oh my plow your fields. Well, what else is it going to do with its horn? Yeah. It's going to use it to create amazing plants. That's where we get kale. Did you know that? From unicorns? Yeah. When they plow the fields. Oh, that's how... Oh, okay. But, you know, because unicorn meat was too bitter. That's why kale is so bitter. Love that. You're welcome. Um, And so it's because of this adorable mistranslation that the unicorn comes to represent Christ. Its horn represents the cross. It also is associated, therefore, with purity and chastity. Eventually, we start to see it adopted by royals, like Kristen said. And it's also worth noting, though, like there is more of a religious connection than just among the Christians. And so during the 14th century, Hebrew manuscripts actually also featured the hunt for the unicorn, um, both in drawings and in writing. And they used it as a metaphor for Jewish suffering, obviously not of Jesus, because that wouldn't make sense. So from here... 
We've got to dig into this idea that unicorns can only be tamed by virgins because this is really the crux of today, our association with girls and unicorns. And let's be honest, uh, grown ass women <laughs> such as ourselves. Yeah, oh, yeah. So hunters were encouraged to take young maidens out into the woods to capture a unicorn because the idea was that the unicorn would be attracted to not only her purity, but also her scent. What? I can only imagine that has something to do with menstruation. <laughs> I don't know. I'm serious. Would they not be afraid? I feel like, weren't men not afraid of menstruation, though? Or maybe uh, the scent, well, maybe it has to do with fertility. I don't know. Maybe she smelled like bread. Ooh, there mm. we go. And yeah. unicorns were like, I love bread, too. <laughs> Uh, so, so the unicorn would sniff this pumpernickel pure girl in the middle of the woods and he'd be like, cool, I'd like to hang out with you. And he would, I don't know, why am I gendering it male? Are no, unicorns only did. male? Oh. Because they are, they typically, like everything I was reading, they're always gendered male. That horn is phallic then. Mm-hmm. So the unicorn would kneel in front of the virgin and place his four legs and head on her lap, which is such a lovely vision. Yeah. Except for what happens next. Yeah, the whole the whole um, capturing and, and killing of a unicorn. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the twisted thing about all of this. And yeah. I wonder if this traces Christianity-wise to the whole thing about Eve and women being deceptive, mm. the fact that this masculine, strong unicorn is attracted to this virginal creature in the woods. Well, we haven't even gotten to Mary yet, dude. Yeah. And like submits to her like purity. Yeah. But she then turns on him and yes, and leads him to slaughter, essentially. Just like even that apple man or more likely a pomegranate, to be fair. These uh, my trapper keepers. Are taking on a whole new significance. <laughs> well, that's right. And, and so as we move into the Middle Ages, pre-Renaissance, we're starting, or moving into the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, we're starting to see more and more ancient texts being discovered and translated. And so descriptions of all of these animals are coming to light. And so we start to see these critters being featured in artwork more often. And they are typically, again, Shown hanging out with women, putting their heads in their laps, I guess for a nap. I mean, there could be some weird sexual subtext or it could. I don't know. Maybe she literally is just like so sweet and pure that the unicorn just wants to come hang out for the day. I don't know. And those dude unicorns, dudicorns are always white. Always white. Pure as a driven snow. They are. They are. And okay, so we get uh, this 12th century manuscript called the English Bestiary. Uh, showing Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, as a hunter with a horn and two dogs, driving the unicorn onto the lap of the Virgin Mary. She's wearing blue. It's Mary's color. She looks great in it. Uh, and then about 1490, so we're giving you a rundown of some art here. Uh, we get this portrait of a fancy woman. She's an Italian fancy lady, professional fancy lady. And uh, it's her wedding portrait. And there's all of this imagery in the background of the painting related to fertility and marital virtues and prosperity. But it does include a unicorn, a a woman feeding a unicorn. And it's playing into that idea that only a virgin could lure him. So it represents not only the bride's supposed purity, 
uh, which would have been incredibly valuable and important, but also represents that taming of the beloved in marriage portraits. You also see like trays that were given to people on their wedding day that would feature unicorns and stuff like that. So it was big symbolism for weddings and virtue. Let's bring that back. Um, yeah. Hello? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to say that I'm uh, mad that I wasn't given a unicorn tray upon my wedding, but <laughs> I wouldn't have turned it away. Um, well, possibly the best, biggest, and most well-known example, even if you literally don't know what it is, you've probably seen it, is these tapestries, this series of seven panels from around 1500 that depict the hunting, killing, and resurrection of a unicorn. So the hunt symbolizes Christ's tribulations on Earth, and the pin that it's trapped in is supposed to symbolize heaven. And according to this website that we looked at called The Culture Concept, which was really digging into all the symbolism from these tapestries, the unicorn, they say, is a savage, loyal, and emblematic representation of Christ. He's pure and he's invincible. His white color was a symbol of worldly enticement, exciting hope or desire meant to lure, attract, and tempt. And they write that the unicorn is a symbol of the incarnate redeemer who has raised a horn of salvation for the sins of man. And the virgin who ensnares him is Mary, his mother, whose virtue he could not resist. And the thing is, because if you're like, wait, but isn't Mary supposed to be pure and there's not supposed to be like temptation and fighting fate and all this stuff? Well, there were there was clearly enough weird subtext for the Council of Trent in 1563 to forbid the viewing of this tapestry. They were like, ah, the symbolism is not quite pure enough or like innocent enough. We're not really sure what's going on. But yeah. And so if you were wondering if the symbolism was a little strange or or maybe even violent in these Vertoya tapestries, you're probably right. I mean, not that the Bible doesn't isn't chock full of violence. Yeah. Well, there's one tapestry depicting the unicorn being killed. And it is. I mean, it's hard to look at just because you don't like mm. to see a unicorn being killed. It's but of course, that's blood. the whole. Yeah. And that's the whole like symbolism of the crucifixion of Christ. Well, sure. But also because this is another example there, you know, countless examples of this in history. But another example of um, the Christian powers that be acting within the pagan stories and cultures that already existed. They're like, well, you know, we don't we can't completely uproot everything that these people already believe. Let's just layer our beliefs on top of these pagan beliefs and practices that already exist. And we've already discussed all of like the more pagan representations of women and the hunt, but they were powerful. They were active. They were jealous and spiteful and sexual. Well, you can't have that with Christianity. Um, And so... You know, that means that the horn would represent Christ rather than potentially being a more phallic symbol as it was in in pagan tradition. And there is a panel among those tapestries that shows the unicorn with its head in a woman's lap. So the symbolism, of course, being Christ in like essentially like the Virgin Mary's arms. Yeah. So the same way that Christ comes to Earth via Mary. She is a, a vessel through her uterus. Through her uterus, uh, same thing. Like the 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 magical unicorn is lured by this virgin, so that it can be killed and be resurrected 
as a Lisa Frank Trapper Keeper. Um, but you, this this next point reminded me of our libido episode because Mary was a hugely powerful figure in all of this medieval art because not only because she was virginal, but because she could therefore resist the weaknesses of the flesh. Because remember, from our libido episode, we talked about how it used to be viewed that women were the ones with the insatiable sex drive, and therefore that made them unfit to hold power. Like the bread goddess. Like the bread goddess. Whereas men were able to control their lust and their sex drives. And so they that meant that they were in control of themselves and the world around them enough that they could and should hold power. Because men are ruled by logic and women are ruled by emotions. <sighs> and unicorns. Yes. Yeah. And so uh, she was also a great example. If you consider tapestries to be pop culture, uh, she was also a really great example to the higher-born women whose menfolk were away fighting the Crusades to remain chaste and pure enough to, like, lure a Christ-symbolizing unicorn. And all of this is adding up to the Capital C Church encouraging something called Mariolatry, which is just a fancy word for worshipping the Virgin Mary, along with, of course, the... The, the god figure, the father god figure. Right. And so, I mean, I guess that sort of brings us up to now, almost. I mean, we're, we're sort of glossing over a lot of history, but like the whole virginal little girl association with unicorns still for sure lingers. Absolutely. And I was digging around to try to find a moment in American pop culture when unicorns first enter the fray because it seems like quite a big leap to go from these tapestries to trapper keepers. (laughs) And the best that I could find was uh, citing Fantasia, which came out in Mm. 1940, because Fantasia has a scene where all of these adorable unicorns are dancing around. But this is the first time that we see them in like a mass media setting where they are not these white, masculine, powerful creatures of yore, but rather they are multicolored oh. and kind of sparkling, very My Little Pony-ish. And so Fantasia, Disney's Fantasia, is probably what started introducing unicorns to kid culture. Oh, that makes so much sense. And then we grow up playing with My Little Pony. Mm-hmm. Hasbro, thanks a lot. Yeah. And then Lisa Frank. For sure. And, of course, you know, the other movies. Um, and then memes of Obama riding a unicorn Pegasus. Yeah. Yeah. It, it all comes full circle. <laughs> it makes so much From sense. hieroglyphics <laughs> to Obama memes. Yeah. I mean, it's perfect. Yeah. Um, and... I, I had completely forgotten about that unicorn scene in Fantasia because it has been quite a while since I've seen it. But I'm curious to go back. I would, and yeah. Watch it. I just remember I was kind of scared in um, the part of Fantasia where, like, I think Mickey's on the mountain and he's like making all sorts of crazy magic happen. And I just remember that kind of scared me as a little kid. Yeah, the wizard gets a little intense there for a minute. But I wasn't scared of Legend with Tim Curry as the devil. I don't know. And I could watch Temple of Doom with the guy's heart getting ripped out. And I was totally fine. Oof, not me. But like Fantasia scared me. (laughs) What is that even? Maybe it was partly the music. For me, at least. Be, yeah. Um, but uh, like going back and just looking online at uh, images and like that, you of course you can like watch that scene on YouTube. I mean, it it looks 
straight out of, you know, My Little Pony, like old school sketchbook. Yeah. Oh, I have to go back and look at it now. Um, but so a couple years ago, there was this article on Slate where they were examining this. It was one of one of many articles examining this question of like, why do we have the link between little girls and unicorns? Like, what's up with that? And Nina Shen Rastogi was writing that it could be, you know, obviously, like none of us can be experts on why a girl might feel the way she does. But it could just be that connection between the mythology that it takes something special in a woman or a girl to draw the magic of the unicorn. Maybe there is some some of that lingering around our depictions of unicorns today that's like still in our collective minds that you hope that you are special enough um, to like draw a unicorn out of the forest. Like, especially when you're a little kid and you're playing in the woods. I don't know. Maybe there's some like just kid animal connection that you hope like you can be the one to draw the unicorn. Well, I think like when I was a kid, at least I had no idea about virgins attracting unicorns. Oh, sure. No. But I, I, to me, it's just a lot more elemental of a unicorn is such a perfect combination of the adventure that you get from horses. Yes. And magic. Magic and imagination. Yeah. So, and the whole like sparkle glitter factor certainly helps. Yeah. I mean, it's the same way. Like it goes back to our mermaid episode too, that we, we, I mean, whoever we is girls, women, us as a culture, like are drawn to these sort of like half and half critters, these things that are almost like us or almost like the things that we see in daily life. But not quite. They're a little bit more special, a little bit more magical. They hold special powers. Well, and now if we look at kind of unicorn vernacular, unicorns are very much associated more with uh, non-binary culture Mm -hmm. and gay culture where, um, you know, unicorns are these very special things and they're more representative of, you know, the, the uniqueness of of people. Although when you do Google literally just women unicorns, like everything that comes up on that first page of Google is like gamer bros and and the like talking about how a woman who likes nerd culture is a unicorn. Mm. And I'm just like <sighs> anything that's rare to find. Yeah. Yeah. Um yeah, there there are lots of different ways that's uh that's applied. Um, also, one thing I learned about reading up for this episode is that there is apparently a lot of unicorn uh, fan fiction erotica. Not online. surprised if it exists. Oh, yeah. There's erotica for it. Rule 52. Is that what it is? Rule some number where everything has a dirty <laughs> interpretation online. Um, but if we also like hop back into the Lisa Frank universe for a second... You know, she's got the unicorns, but also the dolphins happening. This came up uh, with Laura Breitman, who was an MIT graduate student in the history of science, who writes about animals and how we think of them. And she told NPR in 2011 that, quote, horses and dolphins and unicorns are all borderland creatures, Mm -hmm. gateway animals to other worlds. And they let us be cowgirls and oceanographers and mermaids and princesses. Well, that whole gateway to the borderland or whatever, which now I'm just thinking of that Madonna song, uh, Borderline. Um, Is it the gateway to the meadow of understanding? Yeah, I think so. But that's like basically the plot to legend. 
Right? Like, I mean, I'm saying right to you. You yeah. haven't seen it, but. I'm just nodding. Right? Listeners? In a very homeschool move. Like, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh, exactly. <laughs> um, but basically a gateway to evil opens up and Tom Cruise and Mia Sarah have to go put a stop to it with all of their little woodland friends. That, that, yeah. Yeah. But I think these, yeah. I think this, this gate opens up into delightful magic. Yeah. Cupcakes and, and Fantasia and uh, glitter. Yeah, or just, you know, like, having having adventures. Yes. Uh, also, don't want to leave the guys out of the unicorn conversation. I know that there are a lot of boys. You got the bronies who love My Little Pony. I know not all the ponies are unicorns. There's only one unicorn among the pony crew, um, but still very closely related. Uh, and, and, you know, guys out there who, who love a unicorn as yeah, do well. You, do you feel left out? Because... This whole conversation has basically centered on how gendered unicorn mythology is. And it's because it's all having to do with women, whether it's the active jealous goddess or the virginal maiden. But originally, the unicorn was gendered male. It was highly masculine. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, the unicorn itself has has pretty much always been gendered male. Yeah, but not definitely not anymore. Now it's become this like. This this girly thing. I'm, I have a feeling if unicorns still had their like hyper masculine phallic association, we would not see them in kid culture as much. That's true. That's true. Yeah, and and uh, they were clearly masculine and powerful enough to be part of the royal crest. So, so if there are any unicorn scholars out there, because yes, you do exist, and I think this is like the seventeenth call for people with a very specific profession. <laughs> um, we would love to hear from you because who knew there was so much to the unicorn? Yeah, it's one giant amazing game of telephone, like you said. I think it's perfect. And any unicorn fans out there, we want to hear from you. Also, if you got any good unicorn swag or tattoos or tattoos, send us photos. You can also tag us on Instagram. Have you bought the horn for your cat? Oh, they sell a horn for cats. Oh, man be really cute. Do they sell them for dogs? Probably. I'm sure you could use the same thing. My dog would hate it, but I'd love it. <laughs> gonna have to get one. So send us all of your unicorn email. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our mailing address. You can also tweet us all of your unicorn emojis at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you when we come right back from a quick break. Okay, well, I have a letter here from Ariana in response to our tattoos episodes. She says, I've had many thoughts on many of your subjects, but after listening to your episode on tattooed women, I could not miss this opportunity to tell you about my badass mother-in-law. She's your classic second-wave feminist, born in 1951, working her butt off as a mother and successful career woman, out-earning her husband for many years now. In 2009, her two sons made her dream of getting a tattoo a reality as their Mother's Day gift to her. I was there that day, and she was so adorably happy to finally be getting inked. When I heard you talk about Native Americans during the podcast, I knew I had to write in because my mother-in-law is also an active member of the Potawatomi tribe. Her tattoo is a Native American pictograph of a hummingbird, which is her spirit animal, because she is always busy. I've attached a few pictures of the day she got inked, and fair listeners, I can attest that they are adorable. Uh, Ariana goes on, My fave is the one of her in the chair and her two sons looking on in the mirror. 
Most people who meet or even get to know her would never think someone like her would have a tattoo, but I know how meaningful it is to her, and I love that she finally got one. Thanks for your fearless, funny, feminist podcast. Keep it up. Well, thank you, Ariana. I have a terrific email here from Mark, who writes, Thanks so much for the work you've put into the podcast over the years. I'm a new listener, male, married, middle-aged, and I've got a story I hope you'll find funny. A couple years ago, I began managing a team of six young women in an advertising department. It was a change for me, as I've usually worked on the analytical side of marketing, where I'd managed mostly men. Generally, things had gone very well, but recently I came to realize that I had work to do when it came to understanding the experiences of young women in the workplace. Enter Sminty. I've since been devouring the series from both ends, old and new. Recently, I visited some old friends back home in Ontario, Toronto, a trip that necessitated a four-hour drive from the airport, during which I listened to a bunch of old episodes. When I got to the reunion, I sat down in a camp chair and began to enjoy the party. Then I straightened up at one point, and the arm of the camp chair bumped into my pocketed iPhone, and immediately, Stuff Mom Never Told You began playing really loud. The episode was, Can You Get Pregnant on Your Period?, Naturally, (laughs) half my friends just laughed at me and the other half thought I'd done something so bad at work that sensitivity training had been required. I explained that all was well. It was just that I wanted to develop my understanding of women's issues. Most of the men then stared at me blankly, but I was a bit of a hit that weekend with some of the wives and took the opportunity to evangelize on your behalf. I wound up having several great conversations about your podcast and what I've learned since I started listening a few months back. Please keep up the great work, and if it helps, please know that this middle-aged man has learned a lot from your efforts. And Mark, thank you so much. I love that story. It, we did find it very funny. And uh, kudos to you for being a terrific boss who's taking time to learn more about his employees in that way. So, listeners, if you have stories to share with us, momstuff at howstuffworks.com is our email address and for links to all of our social media as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources so you can learn even more about unicorns, head on over to stuffmomnevertoldyou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Thank you.